Mr. Joseph Selby, the author of The Physics of God, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's only about, well, I guess I listen on 2x speed, so maybe it's not four hours, maybe it's eight hours. Um, but it's on Audible. It's a fantastic book. It's a beautiful synthesis of, uh, in my mind, uh, kind of Eastern meditation with uh, Western science and physics and the really the conclusion that they are in no way separate or at odds with each other, but rather explain each other in our manifestations of one another. But before I go on rambling, because I can do that with no problems, Mr. Selby, or Joseph, please introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Well, there's a lot to tell, but uh, I think one particular part of my life is sort of uh, illustrative of, of how I got to the book. Uh, when I went to college, University of Colorado, I started off as a major in microbiology. And then in my junior year, I switched to Greek philosophy and then went on to transfer to uh, UC Berkeley, where I studied Indian philosophy. So I think that's kind of a picture of myself that has then uh, extended through the rest of my life, that I've always had this um, mind that likes science and understands science, and I've kept up with science, and yet in my heart of heart, uh, I am a seeker. I am looking for uh, higher consciousness. I'm looking to understand and know uh, the realities that are beyond what the senses reveal to us. Uh, and so as part of that uh, unfolding, uh, I found my way to a spiritual community called Ananda, where I have uh, lived and participated and been a key player in making it happen since 1975. So we're coming up on uh, many years. I don't know what that is, 45 years, 46 years of being part of uh, this community. And Ananda is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, who was himself an exponent of universal experiential spiritual teachings. So his whole approach to spirituality was to show how the experiences of all saints and sages in all religions, in all spiritual traditions, are trying to achieve the same thing. And while their language differs and their practices differ, uh, the eras in which they were born differ, that at their heart, they're all trying to provide a way for an individual, any individual, to find within themselves an awareness of higher consciousness, an awareness of God. And so all my... Uh, uh, whole view has been colored by that uh, of spirituality. So in the book, The Physics of God, I got to put together the two halves of myself. I got to put together the side of me that uh, loves science and the part of me that loves experiential spirituality. And in particular, as you already mentioned, to show how there is no conflict between them. There's no fundamental conflict between religion and science, as many people think there are. And the main reason why I think people 
uh, believe there to be a conflict is it's how they define science and how, it's how they define religion. So if you define science as only having to do with matter and energy, which even within science, there's a name for this, which is uh, scientific materialism. It's, a, it's an approach to science. It really isn't uh, a limitation of science. It's a limitation that science has chosen to put on itself. So they're only willing to look at anything that has matter in it and energy interactions that go with it. So when you bring in the subject of consciousness, the sort of hardcore scientists who believe in scientific materialism dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't fit with matter and energy interactions. It's something else. And because it is something else, the hardcore ones just say, well, it can't be, consciousness can't exist as a separate entity from the human brain, say. And so this seems to create this conflict between science and religion. But if you look deeper into the discoveries of science, you'll find that many uh, very prominent scientists, physicists especially, didn't limit themselves to just matter and energy. And they were willing to embrace the notion that consciousness exists as a separate entity. And they included uh, Einstein and Niels Bohr and uh, Heisenberg and many other luminaries within the world of physics who just could understand that science in its present state couldn't understand how consciousness could be separate, how consciousness could be this broader entity. But just because science couldn't in its current state understand it, it didn't mean it didn't exist. And in fact, there were um, a lot of reasons why it might exist to explain things um, about science where science was struggling to you know, make its own theories kind of gel. And then on the spiritual side, you have to get away from uh, sectarianism, which is kind of the bane of religion. Sectarianism basically says this one expression of religion is the one and only true expression. So you have Christians who feel this way, you have Hindus who feel this way, you have uh, Muslims who feel this way, and it's all over the world, and it, it is something that is believed, even though of different religions, but widely believed of all those different religions. And you can't get them to gel with science if you take a sectarian approach to religion, because it's usually metaphorical. It's usually, um, you know, every word uttered and put into the Holy Scriptures like the Bible or the Gita or um, any of the Holy Scriptures of various religions, every word has to be taken literally. This makes the conflict happen as well on the other side. So you've got religion who doesn't think science can be true. You've got science that doesn't think religion can be true. 
But again, if you look to the scientists who were embracing a larger picture of reality, and you look to the actual saints and sages who had direct experience rather than the dogmas of various religions, then you have this amazing thing happen where there is a really clear, easy congruence of thought. Again, they use different language. Uh, Science has mathematics. Uh, Religion tends to be more metaphorical or descriptive. So they don't come together in the same way that a scientist might expect and hope that uh, relativity and quantum physics are going to come together in a, in a, you know, perfect match of mathematics. But they do come together conceptually. And this is what I try to uh, present and offer support for in my book. And as I said, you know, before I launched into this, uh, this is really where my heart is in terms of understanding myself and the reality around me is that it's a blend, that science has its truths, religion has its truths, and there is and can only be one reality. You can't have a reality for science and a reality for religion. There has to be one reality. And you have to appreciate that they're each science and religion coming at their understanding of that one reality in different ways, but they're seeing and ultimately describing the same reality. So I find this really inspiring, as you can tell, I'm enthusiastic about it, Um, and hope and and have reason to believe that a lot of people in reading the, the book, The Physics of God, have been touched by this same uh, feeling, this same uh, experience that I have in, in some way or another. Well, first of all, a lot of times, more often than not, I have to kind of pull teeth to get a guest to talk. And so I love it. I love it when someone's enthusiastic and it, it's such a it's such a nice deviation from the norm for me. So Perfect. Now you won't um, have to pull teeth from me. You may have to tape. You may have to tape my mouth shut, but no. you don't have to pull any teeth. Well, no, because I ramble nonstop all the time. So, you know, if I if I can uh, if I can put the tape on my own mouth, it's a nice little break from the norm. I appreciate that. Um, you know, a lot of what you said, I identify with. I was a um, I was a science major in college. I graduated the University of Georgia in 2013. Was a biology major. Loved organic chemistry. Loved physics hated math, loved biology, chemistry, biochemistry, molecular biology, got into medical school, got into pharmacy school. I did a, a published research. and But all throughout it, there was a parallel spiritual development. I had really gotten into meditation. I'd been doing it a little bit before college, not a whole lot, but really kind of hit my, hit my stride with it. And I had those sort of conflicting ideas, you know, growing up uh, a, a, a Roman Catholic in a in a conservative Irish household and going to Catholic school was very religious and up until like 15 or 16 and I kind of became an atheist. And 
So two, three years later, being in college and, and studying science all the time kind of confirmed my atheism. And it was, you know, there's, there was a, there's a, a letdown to it, right? Because it is scientific redu- reductionism, materialism. Everything is just a bunch of dead matter being pushed by indifferent energy in a cold, f- unfeeling universe, slowly moving towards a heat death. All right, but you kind of take it in stride. It's what it is. But while meditating, it starts to, you start to come across these sort of contradictions to where, okay, we can study the human brain. Okay, we can study the specific types of tissues in the brain. We can study the specific cells. We can, you know, is it dendrites or or, or, uh, glia or chandelier cells or and then we can go in and we can you know talk about the proteins within the cells and the electrophysiological functions and then we can go into the the atoms and they can go into the actual physical forces and the fabric of space time but nowhere in there does it explain this the sense of there isn't nothing going on you just sit still for a second there's something there it as alan watts says it is you know what is it here it is and it was this sort of like 800 pound elephant in the room that was like oh yeah no science explains everything there's the big bang and it, you know everything flies out and at 10 to the negative whatever nanoseconds this happens then this happens and then you know you get all the the light elements and they form the galaxies and the protoplanetary disks and then the stars collapse and they explode and shoot out the heavier elements and that's why we find these and you go on and you're like yeah of course and then there's you know there's the sort of uh primordial goo hypothesis and the amino acids and the lightning and the heat and the replication and you're like mrna and rna and dna and single cell multi-cell ribosomes uh mitochondria and you're like oh okay and coming out of the water and, you know, standing up straight and talking and using opposable thumbs. And it all makes so much sense until you get to the point you find a dawns on you. What are, we, what are we doing? We're explaining everything. Who's explaining everything? Well, I am. Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm here and I'm, uh, and I'm watching all of this. Who are you? Right. Oh, I'm, well, I'm just a brain. I'm conscious. We can see with an fMRI. Who are you? What is I? And it, it just, you know, it hits the road, right? It's, you can't come up with an, you know, what's outside the big bang or what's outside the universe. What happened before the big bang? What is infinity plus one? And the brain it's dividing by zero. All of a sudden, you know, steam and spark starts to come out (laughs) and you don't know what's going on. Right. And what I finally concluded with, you know, the, the meditation, but also the, the aid of um, my first psychedelic experience the day after I graduated college was, oh, they're explaining, they're explaining each other. They're not, you know, uh, you know, you see it, you, you fall in love and, you, and your heart's beating and, you know, there's sexual attraction and you want to be with this person and you want to care for them and, you know, you want to grow old with them. That's, it's beautiful. Uh, the reductionist view would be, well, you're an organism and, you know, your genes are tricking you to fall in love so that you procreate and go through uh, DNA recombination to send life out further. And we can look at an fMRI, Mr. Kerrigan or Mr. Selby. We can look at that's just oxytocin. That's just norepinephrine. 
they're not different. I say, you can't explain this. This is love. This is my heart fluttering. This is a first date. The scientist says, that's nonsense. It's all chemicals. They're this thing. They're just explaining two sides of the same coin. And man, right. that's why I love your book is you go in and you say it so much more eloquently than I can. But I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to hit on that point. Am I, am I conveying it correctly? Yes. Beautiful. Um, so with that, are there any more conundrums that you, so it sounds like we've both kind of came to the same point where you realize it's marriage. It's not an opposition. Is there anything in your mind or in your understanding of reality itself that still doesn't make sense? I mean, sure. Double slit experiment, you know, the, the, the observation effect, the 55%. Is there anything else that still is the 800-pound elephant? Is there something else that we haven't touched on? So that by this you mean is there anything else that science hasn't grappled with? No, no. Or that I personally you, haven't? That, that uh, you, Joseph. Okay. Well, that's a good question. I don't get asked that often. I realized um, as I asked it that I didn't have an answer for it either. <laughs> So I should let you know, this is a good good segue to let uh, people know that I have a new book coming out uh, in the fall of 2022 that addresses neuroscience and experiential spirituality. And it's called uh, Breaking Through the Limits of the Brain. And now I'm working on yet another book now that is addressing uh, basically the strengths and limitations of the medical model, uh, which is also very um, scientific materialist in its, in its way, and comparing it to the anomalies of healing. There are a lot of anomalies of healing that uh-huh. people just, um, they almost come back to life. And the medical model as it is now has no explanation for these. So I love to look for anomalies because I think they draw the clearest contrast between what science or religion might say is the truth and some actual experience that is uh, well-documented, scientifically backed up, or lots of reliable witnesses can attest to, that just doesn't fit that. So I'm, I'm always looking for great anomalies. I'll be reading an article and I'll go, oh, oh, what a great example. Can't wait to use that in a book uh, because it's just such a clear illustration. So maybe I could work my way to answering your question by pointing out that the three key areas that science has yet to come up with a solid explanation. And that is the origin of the universe the origin of life, and the origin of consciousness. Now, if you think about it, those are like the most important questions that people ask, It's the big question. It's why are we here? Right. And so religion attempts to answer those, uh, not in a scientific way of uh, experimentation built on experimentation, 
which I have a lot of respect for. I think the uh, incredible patience that scientists uh, display by this, you know, minute motion forward of experimentation and all the really clever ways in which they figure out how to do an experiment that will get a clear A or B answer, right? That That's what you're looking for. You're looking for an, exper- an experiment that tells you your hypothesis is right or it isn't. Just no, no fuzzy in between because then your experiment is really kind of useless. So I love that about science. I think that's the power of science. But it's also a limiter for science because you you have a hard time um, speculating in science. If you speculate in a direction that is unsupported by any prior experimentation, you tend to get shot down. So scientists who say, well, uh, consciousness may exist independently because of X, they generally don't last very long. <laughs> Their careers are often cut short uh, because that's not the way science approaches their um, uncovering of, of reality. But you have this almost opposite world in experiential uh, spirituality where saints and sages and uh, often uh, near-death experiences <coughs> simply can say, I had this experience and this is the truth. And this doesn't work very well for, for scientists, right? Because they say, well, how, how can you back up such a huge um, assertion? The way I feel that uh, experience, experiential spirituality does back up these huge assertions is the high degree of uh, congruence with other saints and sages. If you read what Christian saints say about their experience or Hindu saints say about their experience uh, or near-death experiencers have to say about their experience, you begin to see this amazing uh, similarity in what they're describing and that it has its own logic. It has its own laws. It has its own um, way of explaining these big three questions. Where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? Where did consciousness come from? In a similar fashion. So for me, this gives it power. If every, you know, if I had to just like end up picking one saint that I could quote all the time in comparison to science, almost everybody would say, well, you're just skewed. You just have, you're just believing in this one saint. You're just believing in this one spiritual voice. And so why should I believe it? But as I tried to do in my book, is I quoted spiritual sources from all over the world, from all eras, and showed how uh, strongly they agreed and how well they meshed with uh, the bigger picture of science, how well they answered it. So I think what I would say, this is not really answering your question very fairly, but I think it's the best answer I'm going to be able to give your, uh, your question, is I think what's missing for me is my own personal 
confirmation of those really deep answers. I believe that one day I could. I believe everyone has access to that same incredibly expansive, transcendent uh, experience of God that includes knowledge, that includes wisdom, that includes understanding of how it all works together. Um, On a detail side, I think science has lots of things left to flesh out, and I think it will in time do it. And I am always uh, excited when I see a, a direction in science that's starting to unfold that is congruent with spirituality, and it happens quite often. But as I said earlier, it's, it's a, a slow process, and, uh, but a solid one, a, a hardcore one. When, when scientists come together and say, these results are true, they're repeatable, this is solid science, then science can build on that. Now, what scientists also tend to do, however, with that uh, new discovery or whatever, is that they may all agree on how solid the findings are, but then their interpretations of what that discovery means really range far and wide. And, and that's where they kind of get to speculate. That's, that's the world of speculation within science. You know, some people will say that, um, you know, an experiment proving that, um, and I'm trying to pick one really solid one that's recent, um, let's say it's an experiment proving that there are neurons in the brain that react simultaneously even though they're on really different parts of the brain. So they, they act as one. And yet there's not enough time for the neurons to have sent a message through the brain to get to all these other parts of the brain. So what they've discovered, a discovery that has been made, is that all of those neurons that react as one are vibrating at the same frequency. So again, solid science, you have all these brain cells that vibrate at the the same frequency. So you can then interpret that as there is a outside influence, a subtle outside influence that is beyond matter and energy that is causing them all to vibrate together. Or you can interpret that as we simply don't know what's causing it yet. And it's an interesting fact, but there's nothing we can do with it now, right? So that's interpretation. What what most people think of as um, some kind of consensus in science is really an interpretation. You, I'm sure you've been in many a conversation where somebody will say to you, well, science thinks this, right? And I don't question it anymore. Most people don't question it anymore. You kind of know what the person means. But if you really pressed them on it, 
what you would discover is that a, a group of scientists think this. And it's not necessarily true. And in fact, it's almost rarely true that all scientists think that. Uh, and so it's the interpretations within science where you can have people who are favor connections to consciousness, can see the potential links to uh, spirituality, and others who just sort of kill it and say, no, 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 that just doesn't fit the materialist model, so it can't be true. Well, <clears throat> one second. You know, <clears throat> if uh, two presidential candidates were doing a debate and one of them asked the other, what's the cure for cancer? And the other said, you know, I, I don't know. That's not necessarily a win for the one that asked it because he doesn't know either. And so that question I asked you is a question I had actually not thought of before. And as soon as I asked you that, I realized I was like, I don't have any. You know, I could kind of relate to you, not kind of. I really related to you with, you know, talking about how we both came to this discovery that it's, that it's the same and not opposite. When I asked you that question, I was like, that's, I've never even thought of that question before. So no, you did, you did beautifully. I, I put you on the spot without, you know, I asked you what the cure for cancer is and I have no idea what it is, but, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's brilliant because, well, one, the scientist that says, you know, what if consciousness isn't, you know, local, what if it's, you know, universal and they get, you know, laughed out of the room, but often the most, you know, the, not all of them, some of them are quacks. But often the biggest scientific names in human history are the ones that step out on a limb and when, you know, what about this? And, you know, like Joseph Lister or, I mean, the Wright brothers. I mean, all of these people that were kind of shot down, Galileo, uh, uh, Bruno. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the ones that are in the consensus, what they are often in consensus of is something that was discovered by one of these renegade scientists, but it was just centuries before. And then it solidifies and we go, well, of course the earth is round, you idiot. Well, for there was a time when the guy that said that, uh, you know, thrown in jail or lit on fire. He was, he was considered to be the idiot. Yeah. 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 I mean, not yeah. just idiot. I mean, house arrest for the rest of your life or, right. or lit on right. fire. Like it's literally killed. So, yeah. um, yeah, so, the consequences were higher back then. Yeah, I mean, now you just get kicked <laughs> off Twitter for spreading misinformation. Back then, the church burned you and everyone applauded. Not entirely different from now, just minus the burning. But so I look at also what you were saying about, um, you know, the many different saints and sages and philosophers and gurus over the ages. And that's something that I also very much so identify with in the same way that, um, you know, like the wheel. I'm sure the wheel was probably discovered on different parts of the earth at different times. I'm sure the mechanisms of, of, of making fire and cooking meat probably around the you know, same time. Now it's not the same because we have the internet. And so, you know, one observation or one, whereas, you know, when the fastest way to travel used to be a horse, you could make discoveries two years apart, but no one would know who was first versus now you make a discovery, you put it online goes over the world like wildfire, which is a great thing. So what I'm getting at is whether it's the, you know, the, the laws of mathematics or realizing early on before they had steel and rebar that the best way to build a tall structure was making it a, a pyramid of some sorts. Um, they all kind of discovered these things at different times, right? I mean, sundials or, you know, uh, 
again, you know, boats or whatever. I feel the exact same with with the spiritual side of it, because you can look back and it can be the Bible. It can be, you know, you know, early in his life, Muhammad. It can be the Bhagavad Gita. It can be, but they all kind of say the same thing, right? They're like, oh, this world is an illusion. There is nothing but the one. It is infinite love. And you create your world, whether it's, you know, in the Bible, like, you know, the, the world is created like new or the idea of like the multiverse where it's like every possible thing is, is happening right now. It's being formed right now. It's blossoming right now. Like looking at the, if you were like to look at like a water fountain from the top, it's just, it's constantly coming out into the now you find all these things. And then, I mean, I remember really getting into meditation fall 2010, my sophomore year of college one of the elected elective courses I had to take was religions of the world. And one of the things I had to read, I had never heard of it before. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't paying attention. This is, I still kind of scoffed all this stuff off as, Oh, this is taking away from my science. So I just, you know, I didn't really give it the, the old college try ironically enough in college. But I remember one of the things I had to read was an excerpt from the Bhagavad Gita had no idea what it was had in, as far as I knew it was written yesterday or 20 years ago as a contemporary piece i don't know but i remember reading about the description of like meditation and it's something along the lines of like you get like a deer skin mat and you sit on the mat and it's not too high and it's not too low and you sit cross-legged and put your hands on your lap and you go inward and it's like you know there are thoughts and behind the or there's like a there's like a opinions and behind opinions are emotions and behind emotions are beliefs and behind beliefs are, are thoughts and behind thoughts are uh, personality behind person. And it's going on and on and on and on. And it goes all the way down to finally, it's like you get to the self capital. Yeah. S. And I remember reading that and I was like, I was like, yeah, that that's the thing I've been experiencing meditating. I was like, this guy's onto it. Not realizing that the book was thousands yeah. of years old. And I was, that was a, that was a big moment for me when I was like, it's like discovering the wheel or learning how to build fire. I was like, oh, this is, it, it's science. It's something, it's peer reviewed and it's, it's, uh, it's reproducible. We can make it through, you know, here or on this continent in this year or five millennia ago. And, um, you know. Yeah, let me just, let sure, me just sure, take it. interject here real quick, but I just, I'll let you get back yeah. to the training of thought. But that is why I do use the term over and over about experiential spirituality because meditation and other practices, but meditation especially proves to you, to your own satisfaction, the truth of what's being said. You don't have to just believe it because a saint or sage has said it. Uh, and most people won't unless they experience them, uh, something of it, you know, even just a piece of it can sometimes be so thrilling, so deep, so moving, uh, even life-changing, that after that, you simply don't question the, the fundamental truth of it anymore. But if you are a, you know, like many religious people are, wedded to a certain set of beliefs, but you've never had any experience yourself, you can have that belief shaken. 
very easily. There are a lot of people who have tragedies happen in their lives and they turn around and, and hate God. They, they say, how could you possibly do this to me? Uh, and, and other things where people I know uh, who have been meditating for many, many years and stories I've read of people who've been meditating for many, many years, when those kind of things happen, they can take it into their own experience of what the divine is and what the divine isn't and not blame it on God. They can see it as part of their own spiritual unfolding and can even feel uh, gratitude for that experience because it teaches them things. It awakens them in ways that they hadn't been before. So unless it's experienced, it's just not real to you. And once it's real to you, it makes all the difference in the world. It is almost as fundamentally true as the old adage about trying, trying to describe color to a blind man. It, you know, unless you see it, unless you feel it, especially experiential spirituality is all about feeling and uh, not about more thoughts and more concepts and, and, and more thought processes. So anyway, uh, sorry to, to break no, your train. Hopefully you can get back to it. No, no, no. But I think it's a key thing for people to understand who, you know, people often ask, well, I don't get anything out of meditation. I mean, why do people meditate? Why should I meditate? And then you hear somebody say, well, I, had, I said those same things. And then I had this meditation that was really wonderful. And I was hooked. So it's all about experience. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, it's like when you had to read like Romeo and Juliet in like middle school or something, and you're like, "What? Like these? Right. They sound like they're on coke. I mean, they literally sound like they're on cocaine." <laughs> and then you're 16 and you have your first experience of like puppy love of I like her and she likes me. I mean, right. my God, you're like, "Oh, this is the, these were the drugs Jimi Hendrix was on." You're like, "I get it. I get it." Right? right. And you understand. I mean, you understand, you start to understand how tragedy forms people. I, I, in 2014, I lost my older brother to suicide. I was 23 and he was 27. Man, if that wasn't, if that wasn't the biggest source of what I would like to believe is a growth in my ability to experience and act upon empathy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you can read, you go, oh, yeah, you know, everybody's. You know, be kind to everyone. Everyone's fighting their own battle, but it's like a nice little thing you read. And then you're like, hey, this guy cut me off in traffic. You know, I'm going to ram it. You know, I'm going to yell at him. Screw this guy <laughs> versus yeah. you experience this and or, yeah. you know, you experience a, a, a partner being unfaithful. And then years later, you're unfaithful and you go, oh, doesn't justify. But you go, I get it for for. For, for its goods and its bads, you, you know, as your awareness increases, you, you start to also increase the heavens and the hells, the ups and the downs. When you, when you discover flight, you also discover a submarine and you start to go, oh, it's everything. But what you're saying about experiential. So the biggest thing for me, and it's, I mean, I've meditated almost every day um, when I'm like a year where I didn't ironically enough, right after my brother died, probably when I needed it the most, 
pretty much from like fall 2008, spring 2009 until the present day. Some In some eras, I, I did it multiple times a day. Other times, I did it once a day. And the way I describe it to people, real quick, just as an aside, is not every day is like a, a miraculous thing. Not every podcast I do hits it out of the park. You know, this is, I love this one. We're having a great one. There are a lot where they're all right. You know, sometimes you have a workout that's truly, you're like, that was great. I got the runner's highs, lifting weights. You know, I feel alive. I feel like a young man. And then there are days where like, you kind of go through the motions. So, but I do it every day. And on a handful, on a handful of occasions, let's say maybe 20, I had very uh, unique experiences where the world was turned into like high definition afterwards. But that's, that's kind of nothing compared to probably on five occasions, real, really five occasions. And I've been trying to get back to those occasions for years and I still haven't been able to. But and this is before I ever tried psychedelics. And even then I did psychedelics on five occasions once a year for five years. And those don't hold a candle to these meditative experiences I'm talking about, which I believe is what you were saying you you hope for. And if I could if I could say that in the most unhumble way, I think this is what you are hoping for. And it's what I hope for now to get to it, get back to it, are the experiential truths where everything I've been saying in this podcast, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because I experienced it. You can read about gravity, but I mean, man, you don't, you know, here's the lens to the camera. There, It's a truth. It is a truth and it's right there. You know, you, you can you can tell me about photons, but I can look at these lights over me and I'm like, that's you step outside in the sun. You go, that's I don't care what you say. There it is. These these experiences I had and I haven't been able to reproduce them, but I had them multiple times over the course of about three years. Is you go in further and further. You. You don't feel that you're sitting on a pillow cross-legged. That goes away. The thoughts cease. And it's almost like you don't feel like fingers and shoulders and elbows. Rather, you feel like a sphere. You equally feel, you know, your fingers are much more sensitive than like your kneecaps. But you can still, you know, focus on it, feel your kneecaps. Focus on it, you can feel your ears. Imagine if all of your sensory, your ability to touch, imagine if it was equally uh, distributed. Everything was as sensitive as your fingertips and nothing was more or less sensitive. And then instead of having, you know, four limbs and 10 fingers and 10 toes, imagine that it was equally distributed over a sphere. In a sphere where you're not smelling or seeing or hearing or tasting. And imagine that sphere in an in a moment inflates to the size of the universe. And you go into a level that is as indescribable to now that color is to a blind person. That's one thing I remember from those is knowing when I was in that moment, saying to myself, you're going to remember 
a shadow of this, a silhouette, an echo. But you're not going to remember. You're not because you can't. You go from a tapeworm to a to a monkey to a human. You get to experience humanness, and then you go back to a tapeworm. You kind of remember something, but you 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 don't have the same brain to remember. It's you know it's so. But back to these experiences, and it's just it's 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 so it's the most real thing. It is more realistic than where I am now, knocking on wood, picking up water, talking to you. It is so beyond question and doubt. It is more real than I, if that can, if you can even imagine that. And it's in that you know that everything is one. Everything is love, and that everything is going to be fine. And anything you're experiencing that maybe isn't is part of a learning process that you chose to do. I chose to do this life. As much as I don't like to think about that sometimes, I chose, just like you can choose to take a course, biology, religions of the world, I chose Tommy Kerrigan in 2022. You chose Joseph Selby. And then you start to come out of it and you come out in like layers and things start to come back and you want to stay. You want to go back. You're like, no, 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 no. But you come back from that. And it's something you can never doubt. You can kind of forget about it. It can become foggy and shrouded. But it is a truth that you can never ever forget and i have had those i've done lsd i've done psilocybin i mean they're 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 great sure nothing nothing they are a picture of the sun or a video of the sun compared to a sunny day so and the trick is i think that as you say you want to get back to them so the trick (laughs) is uh extending the amount of time that you're, you're able to stay in them yeah. because the longer you can stay in them, the longer the after effects yeah. linger uh-huh. where you feel that wide open heart uh-huh. center. You feel a spontaneous and effortless compassion towards other people. Gratitude. You feel joy. You're funny. You're the life of the party. And so the more you can extend that time, that you feel that way, uh, the more it stays with you. So totally agree with you, with you 100%. Uh, And a lot of things you were saying reminded me of one of my favorite things to read, uh, which are near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of them, the near-death experiencers, you know, start off by saying, let me first say, this experience is impossible to describe, yeah. but, but, but I'm going to try, to, I'm gonna try to describe it. Yeah. Uh, but that, but that words just are inadequate and then they describe it. And some of my most favorite ones are by the people who are most articulate, most able to give you little sparks of it, little, little uh, bits of that experience. And they, you know, 
for you and for others, for myself, you know, they resonate with something we already feel. But I think for a lot of uh, people who have never touched it, they may become closer to winning somebody to wanting to have that kind of experience than anything else that I've read. Um, because they're obviously so changed, so moved, so uh, not, never wanted to come back ever, you know, and in some cases, almost comically so, uh, their life guides have to basically tell them, you absolutely have to go back, you know, and and they give them more and more enticements for going back until they finally go, okay, I'll go back, but I really don't want to go back. I want to stay, you know, that, they know how incredibly wonderful it is. And, and of course, most, most go back willingly. They can see their, their need to come back. They can see their future growth that they need to, to go through. Uh, but I just love their descriptions. And, and my book, uh, The Physics of God, must have 20 quotes from near-death experiencers because they are so powerful and so appropriate. And many of them, a lot of saints and sages, at one exception being Paramahansa Yogananda, but a lot of saints and sages don't bring any science or Western vernacular into their descriptions of spirit. Um, Yogananda is pretty unique in that he does all the time. He puts it in the context of of science uh, as something I can really draw on for my books. But Many of the saints and sages, or not saints and sages, excuse me, many of the near-death experiencers, because they're modern-day people and Westerners, they do bring science into uh, their description. They talk about being at a lower frequency, and then when they die, suddenly they're at this much higher frequency, which is more energetic, higher energy, uh, and that they realize they're both, they're both real. The, the person that they were moments before or minutes before was just the same person, the same infinite soul living at a lower frequency. And that when they died, they were kicked into this higher frequency and this expanded awareness. But that's all it is. Death is just that. Death is nothing to fear. And that what the masters have, and the reason they're called masters is they've mastered the ability to move back and forth between living in the physical body and living without a body, living in that uh, astral form that isn't made of matter. So I love those. I really recommend them. Um, I've read, I don't know, 50 near-death experience or books, and I look forward to any new ones that come out uh, because they, they are movingly able to make that description. Have you read Proof of Heaven by Dr. Evan Alexander? Yes. Yeah, that's one of my favorites as well because uh, he is very articulate. And uh, uh, his contrast, particularly between what he self-described as the sort of unfeeling scientist suddenly goes into a near-death experience and he's just cracked open. 
It's like his heart expands for the first time in his experience that he knows of. And he, he no longer cares about how you describe it or whether it fits in science or whether it works with neuroscience. He's a neurosurgeon. And then when he comes back, he, he, he does make the, the fit, right? He, that's, that becomes his mission is uh, like mine is to, is to show this unity of spirituality and religion. But his first experience is just overwhelming love and joy and expansion. And it doesn't matter to him, yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it can be described at all. So he's a good contrast, you know, somebody who goes from being, you know, completely not interested in that to completely having that experience. Another guy like that is Melon Thomas Benedict, uh, who was an atheist. And he was kind of a, not only an atheist, but he was a hardcore cynic. Uh, he couldn't find anything in this world to, you know, hang his hat on as being a ultimate truth. They were all just, you know, being a cynic. They were, they were frauds. They were people who were just out for what they could get. Politicians were awful. Uh, you name it. He, he was bitter about the entire world. Has a near-death experience. Comes back and says, none of that matters. None of what I was so upset about really matters. What matters is what you feel. And that we all, as he put it, we all have the equipment to have that experience. We're, we're, we're wired to have that experience. And he became just a completely different person. Uh, life, life transforming. And meditation can do that too. There are countless stories, not just of meditation, but of experiences people have, um, you know, walking down the street, literally, where they get hit by a bolt of spiritual energy and they suddenly see the, the world around them as being made of light and they feel their, their bodies becoming uh, merging into that light and they feel that heart opening. So it can happen anywhere. I think with the power of meditation is that it's a tool that you can use to repeat the experience. And as you say, you don't always repeat it. It's not pat. It's not like, okay, once you've had that big one, that tomorrow you can have it again. Um, because your mind is still unruly. Your, your thoughts are still unruly. Your emotions are still unruly. And... Now you know better where you want to go. Now you know much better what it will feel like when you get there. And that can be kind of your guide. That can be your, your light, you know, that is held before you, that guides you. But you still have to bring the mind into focus, the body into stillness. And sometimes it's hard if you get, you know, it's the same problem before and after, which is that we're caught up in the world, right? You know, we, we're worried about money. Uh, we're worried about projects we're working on. Uh, we have challenging relationships. We have tragedies in our life, as you mentioned. And a trick that the saints and sages have, trick is perhaps the wrong word because it makes it sound accidental, but the, 
what makes them masters is that they can still their body to absolute stillness and they can focus their mind one pointedly, even in the midst of challenge and still feel that transcendent experience of love and above all joy. Yogananda described God as ever new, ever changing joy. Yeah. But that that is what God is. God is joy and everything else is just uh, manifestations of that power of joy. Yeah. So as you can tell, I love meditation. I love to, I've taught meditation to people all over the world. And I really implore people, if you've tried it and you found you had a rough time with it, try it again. Try a different technique. Go back to it. If you've never tried it, try it. It can and often does change people's lives. If sometimes spectacularly, but more often gently, slowly, which allows you to have you know more and more experiences that move you, calm you, make you feel better, and allow you to live your life better, more effectively. Um, because you're becoming who you are. You're becoming more of what you really are. Meditation, it's not that you're meditating. It's that meditation is allowing you to experience who you are, what you are, and th that it's a tool to get you there. So it's, meditate. That's what I always say at the end of almost every class I teach is meditate. meditate. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to have a method. You don't have to, you can try it, trial and error. There's no wrong way. You'll get right. there. You'll get there eventually. I'm still getting there. We all are. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I was going to say, uh, if I can brag, I've, I've, I've had Dr. Eben Alexander on, on this podcast uh, and talking to him. I mean, you can feel the warmth through the screen. Right. It's, it's insane. It is, and to me, like that's talking to him. You can is is an experience, and it's it's sort of like a a secondary or like experience by association. You get to almost feel his experience because talk, yeah. talking to him, you go, you just feel better after it. You're like I, you're like that guy, that guy loves. He just loves, even though he doesn't know me. That guy loves me. Yeah. I wonder what he must have experienced to go through that. Um, with the, it's kind of, you know, it is kind of ironic. It often sounds like the most atheist, hardcore reductionists are the ones that have these experiences. And it makes me think of Terrence McKenna, the uh, ethnobotanist and philosopher and psychedelic advocate who died in 2000. Uh, when he talks about uh, uh, Tom, that was doubting Thomas in the Bible. Right. He goes, of, you know, he, he kind of says it in like a joking manner. He's like, you know, all, all the disciples are like, hey, hey, man, Jesus is here. He came by earlier. And everyone's like, bullshit. No, he didn't. And some of them are like, I saw him. And Thomas goes, you know, you can almost pretend he's drinking a beer. And he goes, I'll believe it if I put my hand in the wound. Otherwise, right. get out of here. <laughs> and he right, goes, right. of every, and then uh, Terrence McKenna goes, of every human being on this world, 
for all of human history, only one touched the resurrected body of Christ. And it was Doubting Thomas. And it's, uh-huh. it's like, so it's, that doesn't mean to be doubting, but it means that for someone maybe listening to this going, you guys have more open minds than me. I really am just a scientist. This is what I do. No, you are more primed for it than anybody else. And it's, um, it's, yeah, if you, if you open your heart to it and give it a try, it's not guaranteed, but if you keep trying, it inevitably will happen. Yeah. It's, it's like cracking it. It's cracking a rock open and seeing the beautiful crystal inside. Just keep hitting it with the, the pitch, not the pitchfork, the pickaxe cracks open. And you can never go back to just looking at brown rocks. You're like, dude, there is a world of purple, green, red crystals that reflect and refract light in a trillion different ways. And other people that are just looking at bricks of granite are going, what the hell are you talking about? And it's like, <laughs> right. You can't explain it until you crack open the rock. But um, Yeah. And yeah. I will say, too, to sure. just add to that, that um, scientists, as, as you're pointing out, are often the most skeptical, but it's because they have a very clear and accurate picture of their own belief system. And in order to get there, they have to learn to concentrate and they have very keen minds. And the difference between what they believe and what they could experience and then believe something else is, is a matter of the heart. But when they have that experience, they bring that ability to concentrate. They bring that keen mind to their own quest. So it is a, a, an important boost to one spiritual quest to, to have a mind that can concentrate and can focus like, like many scientists can. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not a black and white thing at all. It's, uh, it's what you, what you can experience that, uh, and then, and then where you can take that experience that matters. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like Iron Man. I don't know if you ever saw that, the first Iron Man. In like yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's when you have a, a billionaire genius engineer with all the resources in the world, he can be a, an insanely lethal and effective arms manufacturer. Right. When he has his own kind of experience. A little life change. Yeah. And wants to start going after energy. You know, I've successfully privatized world peace. You can, now you have that mind and he, he turns into in, in Elon Musk guy where it's like, hold on, instead of nukes and cruise missiles, what if we start sending humans to the moon and have self-driving electric cars and right. you go, Oh yeah. So it's not that very mind can be the thing that makes it even more effective. Then even if it's not in any outward expression, sure, it makes sure. the inner journey more effective sure sure and yeah that's 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 kind of what yeah, yeah that's no, very important delineation that's yes it's not just you know well what did you do did you help people with charity no just that mindset that 
you know, I think probably my obsessive, hyper-competitive nature to get into medical school to really just eviscerate the competition. I mean, I got into the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I remember that year, I think the statistics were 15,000, mind you, 15,000 pre-med fairly intelligent students, not just anyone applied right. and a hundred got in. And I, I was one that got, so I, there is a hyper competitive nature to me where it's, it's not enough that I do well. I mean, I truly need to be the best. So when you take that and then you can add some humility and empathy, which I very much needed, you use that. I still have that hyper competitive. I would like to think my heart is much more open now, but when I'm meditating, that sort of cutthroat uh, competitor is still in there. And it's like, let's meditate every day. Let's not wait for the experience. Let's go seek it. And um, yeah, no, it's it can be yeah. very, very effective. Well, I think what, what that isn't appreciated that much is that when your heart opens, it's not accidental. It can be as the result of some strong outer influence. But if you look at it and examine it, you will find that there, there was a process that happened. And in meditation, you can learn to do it deliberately. And you can use that kind of focus that you have. You can use, I mean, you call it competitive. I, I don't think it's necessarily has to be competitive. Sure. I don't think you're necessarily competitive now, but you are, you have a strong will. Sure. You have a strong mind. But the I irony is, is you can use your strong will and your strong mind to open your heart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can. And yeah. 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 It's, that's what it, yeah. Not competitive. I got to be the best meditator. No, but maybe competitive against myself or competitive yeah. against, uh, negative thoughts that are like this is all hubbub that was just a random experience like no 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 no. i saw light and love and it's like we're going back in there yeah that's yeah it's this it is a very ironic thing. i mean it's like a nuclear weapon being the worst weapon ever and it's like it you know we still have wars but we haven't had a full-on world war and it is this sort of a uh, ironic thing it's the snake that eats its own eats its own tail it kind of cuts it out from under it you can use that thing to go inwards into the heart and by that kind of negate any negative aspects to that former uh, personality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Sri Yukteswar, who is uh, the teacher of Paramahansa Yogananda, said that devotion, which Westerners ordinarily associate with chanting, singing kind of in, in the pejorative sense, Westerners associate it with being a little bit weak-minded and, you know, kind of jelly-like people who, you know, just kind of Peace, do nothing. Peace, love, hippies, man. Peace, love, exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's the picture that yeah. is put out there negatively. But Sri Teshwar simply said devotion is the determination to know God. And that devotion can take the form of intense concentration at the point between the eyebrows, but it can also take the form of deliberately opening the heart as much as 
you can learn how to do and invite God in and to have that feeling. And that takes concentration. That takes motionlessness. That takes giving it your whole being, which requires that that aspect of yourself, which we generally associate with, uh, like you say, uh, um, kind of a strong accomplishment, yeah. a, a, a strong will to do. So all the pieces of us are all necessary. And we're all born with different pieces of ourselves having varying strengths. And so you use what you got. Mm -hmm. You've got a strong mind. You use a strong mind. Uh, if you're fortunate to be very devotional in a heart quality way, to begin with, you use that. And eventually they both, they both come together. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah. If you're seven foot two, you go to the NBA. If you're five foot two, you become an Olympic gymnast. But you can still get to the same point of you know being a master in your in your respective field of sports. Sports being the you know replacement for the metaphor, God. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. It is. You have to practice. Right. It's what's the you have to love everyone every time. And it's not just, well, I'm gonna practice loving my neighbor more and being nicer to my brother. No man, it also means it also means opening your heart to Osama bin Laden. And that's it sounds so messed up. It's it's trying to empathize with human traffickers with with nazis with rapists things that you can't i'm certainly not there yet but is was it mark twain that said he prays for the devil because no one has prayed for he who needs it most right and that's yeah no, i think it's a good point i like to uh i can't say that i do it resolutely every day but i I like to pray for politicians, especially the I, ones I disagree with. I, I try my hardest. It's, it's, it's very pray, difficult. <laughs> well, I don't pray that they change their minds. No. I pray that they, that the very best thing that could possibly happen for them will happen. Yes. And whatever that is, I can't know that God's in charge. But I pray that whatever that is happens for them. And without the sneaky thought in the back of my mind uh, being well. And I, I'm, and I I'm hope what God right. wants for them is that they explode in flame. Yeah. And I'm uh, going to uh, win. Yeah. But genuinely just everybody has to go through their own process of becoming one with God. And, you know, I believe in reincarnation. So the chances are I've had many, many incarnations where I was not the nicest guy, that I was not uh, living a life of caring about others or having compassion. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to learn those lessons. So uh, just trying to see everybody as part of the same process. You might, and in the you might have been that politician you don't like 
you might this yeah. might be your next go round where you go okay last time you were Donald Trump or last time you were Barack Obama and now you're experiencing I don't like that guy well hey man spoiler alert it's you <laughs> you know and so you go yeah. oh that's me and you go yeah you know just like when you look at a a picture or like a, a journal entry from when you're 15 you're like oh that's so cringy I was so angsty hey bud it's you it's you yeah man you look back at something you go how can someone be that evil how can that person you know beat their wife how can that person murder hey man I don't know how did you do it yeah but as you point out people do uh react when you tell them things like that so when I tell people I was praying for so-and-so they're like he's the worst possible human being in the world how could you pray for him because usually what you think of as prayers is you want something really good to happen for somebody you're praying that you know they get the job they want or that they heal from whatever is happening and so then I try to explain that I'm not praying for any particular outcome I'm just hoping that they are blessed along their way and along their way usually means you're learning that you're growing so whatever they need to grow um I try to do that. Now, I don't want to present myself here as a uh, Pollyanna-Saint combination um, because I don't let go of the fact that I think they may be one of the worst human beings on the planet. (laughs) I just think, well, if there's anything I can do about it other than wish that this person was not on the planet, which is not something... It's very helpful to anybody. So if there's anything I can do, then let me do it rather than just grouse about it, rather than just complain to others. Let me do something that might possibly have some positive effect. And so I pray for them. And even if it doesn't have a positive effect on that person, you're still growing. You're doing the bare minimum in that at least you grew from it. And And even if I can't see that it had a positive effect, I do believe that it does. Yes. And it just may not be so dramatic that uh, it's even remotely noticeable. Uh, But I do believe, you know, we're having an effect on each other now, right? You're affecting me. I'm affecting you. You're taking from me things that you have an attunement to and vice versa. So a prayer is just a connection. Prayer is a bridge between people. And you can send over that bridge the best that you have. Um, and it will affect that person. Now, they, they also have to resonate with it. So it may not affect them very much, but it's bound to affect them. Yeah. Yeah, you can send them the email. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to open it, read it, and respond. But... It's in the inbox. You it's know, in the it, inbox. It's something there, yeah. And it's what I found is another kind of good thing is when you say you pray for these people. It, for me, I I won't name them because you don't. Let's say the person I'm praying for that I think is the worst person in the world. You might go, "That's my guy," and vice right. versa. And now all of a right. sudden we're at conflict. So instead, you just you pray for the person that 
that you don't feel an open heart towards, no matter how hard it is. And this doesn't mean, again, to be peace, love, rock and roll, man. Hey, I get it that, you know, the world is also very difficult. And if there's a guy going around raping children, hey, he's probably going to get caught and thrown in jail. And I don't imagine the cops are going to be nice about it. I'm, I'm, I'm also aware it's a very real world, right? 9-11 happened. Like, it, it, can't, it can't all be kumbaya. I get that. That doesn't mean that you can't, you can put someone in jail who's, you know, raped children. You've removed them from society. Now that they're not a threat, you absolutely can open your heart. You don't have to go talk to them. You don't have to tell other people you're doing it. But you have to try. You have to at least try. Because if you can't even... You know, I'll tell myself things even when I don't believe them. Or, you know, I, I told myself I was, I'm going to do well on the MCAT. I'm going to do well on it, even when I really didn't believe it. And then eventually I started doing better on test scores. and I started to actually feel it, that experiential thing. But I'll tell myself something, even if I don't believe it and it sounds ridiculous. My podcast is going to have a million subscribers one day. <laughs> The very fact that I've at least said it to myself tells me that there is still like there's one little spark inside of me that's not giving up. So even if I look at, I don't know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein who molested you know young women and manipulated them, you know I really don't feel anything of any light or love to them, but. If I can tell myself to, and obviously it's kind of, it's kind of tinted now because I'm saying it on a podcast and is this just me? Look at me. I'm a saint, but just by yourself. So I'll, I'll choose someone else. I won't even name this person. The very fact that even if I don't feel it and I'm like, God, that guy's such a dick. Just telling myself like, like I wish them the best in everything. There is a little part of me that's like, Hey, you maintained your humanity. You didn't. You didn't become the thing you don't want to be. And it changes your heart. Yeah. Uh, I have a good friend who put it really well, um, and his he actively practices this, not just with <laughs> impersonal political or world sure. figures, but you know anybody he's having difficulties with. He said that I pray for people, but here's the key: that I keep praying. Until I mean it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a much better way to say what I was just trying to say. Yeah. Because then when you mean it, you're transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Pray in, in, until you mean it. Yeah. Okay. I hope this. And then finally it does. It starts to open up. And then you go, I did it. Well, now you move to the next harder target. Now pray for that guy. I really can't pray for that guy. Now pray for that guy. Right. And okay. it's And by doing that it also starts to make you realize, you know, again, the experiential, not just reading it about it, but seeing it, you can start to get a glimpse of a shimmer of a reflection of what God must feel towards you. If you can go me, a flawed human with an ego, with desires, with, uh, you know, with you know, mean tendencies and, and, uh, and, lack of humility and uh, you know hypocrisy if little old me 
can find it somewhere in me to put all that aside and just hope for the best for this person, knowing full well it probably won't happen. Well, then what could a truly perfect entity feel? And you go, oh, that... Yeah, are you familiar with Teilhard de Chardin? I've heard the was, uh, I've heard the name. I have heard the it's name. It's sort of a Catholic mystic, Christian mystic, uh, kind of went beyond even being Catholic or Christian. But he said, if you knew how much God loved you, you would die for joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's beyond our comprehension at this point to know and understand the depth and vastness and power of God's love. Yeah. And we get just a a bit of it in the, in the Christian tradition, they talk about touching the hem of Christ, meaning you just, just have the tiniest connection to Christ and touching the hem of Christ or Christ consciousness, as I prefer to think of it can be, to transform your whole life. Imagine what it would be like if you could go beyond just touching the hem and embrace Christ consciousness fully and completely. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of instead of just barely touching his big toe, what if you could give him a big old bear hug, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, it's beyond. It's yeah. But it's us. It's beyond, but it's us. Beyond comprehension now, but us for sure, however long it takes in the future. And with that, let's wrap this one up. That was a beautiful, that was a beautiful discussion, man. Thank you so much for that. I, I dropped a couple swears in there. I'm really trying to swear less. I look back at my earlier episodes and I'm, I cringe so much. And, uh, don't worry. You did it for effect. You did it for effect. It didn't come out as you were actually swearing from the heart. So uh, it didn't didn't bother me at all. Okay, I am trying harder. Um, it's a it's a personal again. It's my own competitive nature of let's see if I can just because it's difficult not to. But um, right, right. I would uh, I would love to have you back on this fall with your new book, um, or your other works. Um, I, yeah, I saw, so I was looking up, so I saw the, the physics of God twice online and one was, I think 2017, one was 2021. Are they the same book or are they separate books? They're the same book. Okay. It's just a second edition. It has, um, some material, new material added about neuroscience and it has a, uh, appendix section on how to meditate because so many people emailed me. Uh, after they read the book and said, well, what do you do to meditate? I'd love to learn to meditate uh, because I mention it, you know, throughout the book. So I thought I would just put it in the new edition since mo- so many people asked for it. And then the neuroscience uh, I put in because it actually gave a better closure to the book than uh, the first edition. But it, otherwise, it's exactly the same book. It's just more uh, without without any change. God, I always I, I always make sure to like right before the podcast, just so I can re- remember the name of the you know I have the author on. Like I want to make sure I have the book down pat. And 
I looked at it and I was like, there's two. And I was like, oh man, I hope I, I hope I got the right one. I hope I, you know, I hope I don't start talking about a book and you're like, what are you talking about, man? Like, this isn't my book. And, uh, so, but I'll put the book in the description. I'll put all the links to all of your stuff in the description. Uh, I would love to have you on again when you come out with your new work. And uh, my pleasure. Or if you want to come on before then we can just chat again. Cause I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Um, but yeah, man, that, I, I, that, that felt like a meditation. I feel, I'm feeling a little lighter, a little warmer. Yeah. That was, that's great. That was, that was it was sweet for me too. It was nice it was, to be able to, uh, yeah. commune in a, in a common space like that. It also helps you feel a little less crazy. And you're like, hey, this guy's thinking the same way I. Maybe we're both just insane and we're confirming each other's insanity. But you're like, hey, this guy saw the same thing with the science and the meditation. And we're all love. And my bad person for praying for Hitler. And then you go, oh, okay, good. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we're both crazy, but at least we'll, you know, we'll be in the madhouse together. So, um, Mr. Joseph Selby, you got a phone call coming, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much, sir. I will email you when this episode is up, and uh, can't wait to talk to you again. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. You as well. And let's connect. Absolutely. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless everybody. Stay safe. Recording stopped. Thank you so much. You have a good one.